All right, we're yeah, we're in First uh, John chapter four now, uh, and as and, and Chuck talked about love for his first part. That's right. We talked about love, the love of God, and and the, the last lesson. Last lesson it was sh- the sh- focus of John shifts from practicing righteousness onto loving our brothers, and he uh, said that. This teaching about loving others is, he said, I'm not telling you something new. I'm reminding you of something that you heard from the beginning. And remember, Jesus said that, Jesus taught in John 13 and John 15, love one another as I have loved you. And Jesus demonstrated his love by laying down his life. John explained why we need to love one another. He said, first of all, because Jesus told us to. All right, that's, that's, that's a good enough reason right there. And then he said, if we don't love our brothers, then we're really just like Cain who murdered his brother. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said that, that anyone who hates his brother is a murderer and there's no eternal life abiding in him. So very strong words about the importance mm-hmm. of, of loving, loving one another. And then the demonstrating real love is action. People think of love as a feeling. And, and there's certainly there are feelings involved with love, but biblical love is, is not just a feeling or an empathy or compassion, but it's also followed through with action. It involves sacrificing. That could be time, money, comfort, whatever, not just with words. And Jesus gave us the ultimate demonstration of love by laying down his life for us. And it says, because he's done this, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And then we mm-hmm. looked at... What does that mean in the Bible? It means, uh, you know, John said in in 1 John 3, 17, if you see your brother in need and have the ability to help, but instead shut up your heart, you do not have the love of God in your heart. So so that's that's what we were discussing before. I want to pick up in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they have God, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard Uh, was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth, and the spirit of error. So this is touching on some things we talked about in a previous lesson. Um, there was a problem in the church that John is addressing, which was Gnostic-type thinking. The, the Gnostics were, uh, it was, it's not clear whether this was an offshoot of Christianity or this was a group that existed independent of the Christians and then blended in with the Christians, but 
The Gnostics had an attitude that the material world and the body, the physical world, are corrupt and degraded to the point where they had a hard time accepting that the Son of God could become fully human. Uh, they had a hard time accepting the resurrection of the body and that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead because they thought that matter is bad and the flesh is bad, the spirit is good. And so uh, this, this, they had problems with that. And a lot of uh, John's writings discuss why this is so destructive. Um, so he... He in, in in his statement here, you know, he's addressing a, a heresy that they had in the beginning, which we aren't dealing with in quite the same way today. He said, "Every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ has has come in the flesh is not of God." So there were people who believed that they would say that that Christ came, but didn't really come in human form, or when he was resurrected, it was a spiritual resurrection, not a physical resurrection. So he was he was refuting that. And he also warned, he said, many false prophets have gone out into the world. So this is a problem that, that he's dealing with. And this is early in the church's history. At least one of the apostles is still alive. And he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Most Christians today assume that whatever church they're in, is so good and so inspired by God that they couldn't possibly have any false teachers or false prophets in it. Because after all, that's we're, we're just, you know, we're God's special people that can't possibly have in us. And John's saying, no, there are lots of false prophets have gone out. And Peter warns the same thing. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, just as there were false prophets among the people, talking about in the Old Testament, the Old Testament they were full of false prophets that they were causing problems. It says, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord Jesus who, brought, who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. So this has been a problem from the beginning of, of the Christian faith that, that there have been false prophets and false teachers in the church. And so he's saying, watch out for it. And I think we need to take that seriously as well. I mean, how do we know? I mean, how do you know that I'm not a false teacher? Or, you know, or, or, or how can you tell if I, if I stray off the base? You say, well, Chuck's a good guy, uh, so therefore I'm sure everything he's saying is, is okay. That's, that's not what Peter is saying. He said, look, there have been false prophets, there have been false teachers, you have to watch out. How do you tell if somebody is a false prophet or a false teacher? Well, you can tell them by their fruits. If you see that somebody is, is corrupt and they're greedy and they're just in it to make money, that's definitely a bad sign. Uh, if somebody is lying, if somebody is involved in sexual immorality, if there's some obvious sin in their life, yeah, so there, there's, there are many, many different ways that you can, you can tell if, if somebody is in it for themselves, this talks about Balaam was a false prophet in the Old Testament and he loved the wages of wickedness. He was in it for the money. So people who were in it for the money, that's a bad sign. A lot of people throughout, throughout time have used religion as an excuse to, to generate money or power for themselves. So we shouldn't be surprised if we see this around us in the world or other religious groups. This doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the gospel because there were always, this is, this is just 
part and parcel of the truth. Satan didn't go away, and he continues to try to infect the church with false teachers and false prophets. Um, the only way that I know to be solid on uh, whether somebody's a false teacher or, or, uh, or a, a true teacher of God is knowing the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Is studying the Word of God myself. I can't just trust what they're saying. I have to know the Scriptures and then stop and think, okay, is what they're saying, does this agree with the Word of God? Because I know the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures, and so if they're taking the Scriptures out of context or violating what the Scriptures say, and also, so there can be somebody who can be a good teacher who then goes off the rails and becomes a bad teacher later on. I've certainly seen that. So we shouldn't be surprised or question the, the truth of the Christian faith if that happens. So this is it's a warning for us. He said, there, John, even in his own day, there many prop, false prophets had gone out. And it's surprising, even though Gnosticism, you say, well, Gnosticism is a problem that they had in the church 2,000 years ago. We certainly don't have that today. But actually... A number of false teachings that are circulating around in the church today, in the Christian world, have their roots in Gnostic-type thinking. The Gnostics' attitude was everything in the flesh is bad and is, is of no good, and it's only what's in your heart or your mind or your spirit. That's the stuff that matters. So teachings that I have seen circulating today, which are Gnostic-type thinking, okay, People who don't believe in the bodily resurrection. There's a lot of Christians who believe that when you die, your, your body goes in the grave and that's it, and your spirit goes up to heaven immediately. And, and that was considered to be a Gnostic type thinking because God's plan, he created man body and spirit, and his plan is to resurrect the body. And on the day of judgment, all the dead will be raised up bodily and will be judged body and spirit together. So this is a basic Christian teaching. One of the six foundational teachings of the faith is the resurrection of the body and that the the Gnostics didn't believe in that. They just believed it was all about your heart, your spirit, and what you think, what you feel, and, and that you would you would go straight to heaven. So that's I think that's a, a Gnostic type thinking that the flesh of is no is of no consequence. Um some people's attitude is that what we do with our bodies has no bearing on our eternal salvation. That as long as you believe in your heart, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, you know, uh, Romans chapter 9, that you'll be saved. That that's all you have to do is just believe something in your heart. If you believe the right things, you're saved. How you actually live has no bearing on that. And of course... Um, uh, throughout the scriptures, it says that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If we're if we are sinning against the temple of God by sinning with our flesh, that's a very serious problem. So uh, we do have to be living holy lives with, with our with our bodies at all. It's not just a matter of your mind. Same thing with conversion. Some people's attitude is well. It's all about our spirit. Our body has nothing to do with salvation at all. And so, therefore, if I just believe something or I say a prayer, then I'm going to be saved because what, what happens with my body is, is of no consequence. But the Christian's attitude was no. It's the, our bodies are washed in water or baptized. The God's plan is to save our body and our spirit. And so, therefore, a baptism is necessary. We have to, uh, we have to uh, believe, we have to repent, we have to confess, but we also have to be baptized. So God's plan is to save body and spirit together. So, 
A lot of heresies that are floating around in the Christian world today are a result of Gnostic-type thinking that, that your flesh is of no consequence, and, and it really is. And, and, then, and then he says here, he says he, he's encouraging the Christians in the midst of false teachers that are going out. He says, we can take comfort that he who is in us, so he's referring to the Spirit of God in us, is greater than he who is in the world. Now, who do you think he who is in the world is referring to? The he who is in the world is a reference to Satan. Satan who is in the world, this is his kingdom. Okay? So uh, there's there's this interplay between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And then it's also cast as a battle between truth and lies or truth and error. So he says uh, uh, in First John chapter four verse six, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So this is a this is this is the split. It's light and darkness. It's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. It's truth versus error and lies. Mm. So. Uh, Jesus came into the world bringing truth. He said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And uh, in Ephesians 1.13, Paul says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So in, in the world that is consumed with lies, the most powerful weapon that we have is the truth. That's why it's so important to be deeply in the Word of God every day to be, uh, to be grasping the truth and presenting the truth to the world rather than fine-sounding arguments. And this discussion about love continues, verse, uh, and still, let's continue in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this is love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So, uh, I mean, if you count up the number of times the word love appears in here, that's uh, 15, 20 times, it's just love, love, love. It's, love is all over the place in this passage here. There's probably more discussion about love in this passage of the Bible than, than in, in any other. And uh, including the statement twice in here, God is love. This is perhaps... The most popular 
among people who are Christians and aren't Christians, this is maybe the most popular, acceptable verse in the whole Bible, is God is love, which appears twice here. Of course, uh, what does that mean? Well, people have their own ideas of what does it mean God is love. I want to talk about that a little bit. I think what he's saying here is God is the source of love, that he loved us first, he showed us love by sending his son to pay the price for our sins. Uh, And then it says, if God loved us like this, is the source of love, if we're following God, certainly we will be loving one another, we'll be spreading that love around to other people. And then if we don't love other people, then we don't even know God since God is love. So this is the mark of the Christians, is God is love. If we're following God, then we will be radiating that love out to the rest of the world, out to other people. So everyone loves this statement, God is love. I mean, even the the, the people who are Christians, the people who aren't Christians, the New Age people, the pantheists who believe that God is everything and God is in everything, uh, everyone can can uh, uh, accept this statement that God is love. But what does it mean? Let's think about this. Um, most people see love as a subjective feeling. So saying that God is love, if you look at love that way, turns into God is subjective and I can make him into whatever I feel like, whatever I want to. And I don't think that's what John is saying here. He's not saying that we can have an imaginary God that we can wrap around to whatever we feel like, what we think the right thing is. This is a God that will accept almost everything. And people will take a look at various sinful behavior, like they'll take a look at, um, you know, we have somebody who's running for president right now in the United States who's, who's a man who's involved in a homosexual lifestyle who claims he's a Christian. And I'm not particularly down on the guy, but, uh, uh, you know, there's lots of, lots of sinful lifestyles that lots of politicians are involved in. I'm not trying to, to single out one, but... The, 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 re, the rationale that people will make for excusing all kinds of behavior that clearly goes against the scriptures mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, including heterosexual immorality, is, well, God is love, and I'm just loving another person, so therefore it must be okay. Well, that's, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's take a look at what does he mean God is love? Now think of there are some other statements. The God is love is a very popular statement of the Bible, but there are some other other God is fill-in-the-blank statements, and all of them are true. We can't just accept the ones that we like and throw out the other ones. Okay? Uh, One one that's a little bit, has a little bit of a different sense to it, one of the God is statements, it's in Hebrews 12, it says, Our God is... A consuming fire. Hmm, that sounds a little different than love there. That's Hebrews 12, 29. And, and, and there he's doing nothing more than re- repeat what Moses said in Deuteronomy, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, which is what they said at Mount Sinai. That's what Moses said. John 4, God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. 1 Corinthians 10, God is faithful. Meaning, God always keeps his promises. God never lies, and he always keeps his promises. God is faithful. 
In First John one five, we we discussed this earlier. It says God is light, and Him there's no darkness at all. And uh, James five it says the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So all these God is statements are true, and I think of it as like saying you can say the let's take the Atlantic Ocean. There's something that's fairly big, all right. The Atlantic Ocean, you can say. The Atlantic Ocean is water. That's a true statement. But you can also say the Atlantic Ocean is cold, especially up in Maine, uh, where we go for vacation. It's very (laughs) cold up there. Or you can say the Atlantic Ocean is salty. That's definitely true, too. It's just so salty you can't drink it. So all those statements are true, and one doesn't take away from the other. But you can't go backwards. You You can't take the statement and flip it the other way around. You say... The Atlantic Ocean is water, but you can't say water is the Atlantic Ocean. That's not true. Okay? You can't say that. You can't say salt is the Atlantic Ocean, but you can say the Atlantic Ocean is salt. It's the same thing. You can say God is love, but you can't say love is God. All right? You follow. So love is a characteristic of God. It's an essential characteristic, but it doesn't limit God. There's many characteristics of God. So this doesn't this doesn't limit God other than God is not not love, okay? So the two problems that I see approaching this whole idea of God is love. Some people, even really serious committed Christians who who want to follow all the commands of God in their hearts I think, really struggle with the idea that God is love. So deep down, in your heart of hearts, do you really see God as overflowing with love for you and for everyone else in the world? Is that how you see God, honestly? I mean, some, a lot of people see God as... God is just standing up there with 150 rules waiting to hit the smite button when you mess up on one of them, okay? That's some people's view of God, or he's just, he's just waiting for you to mess up so that he can condemn you on the last day to hell. Um, another question. I notice that many people, when... Life brings them pain, trials, disappointments. They either blame God or they question God, or they wonder, does God really love me at all? Does he really love me? If he really loved me, why are these things happening in my life, or why are these things not happening in my life? They question. They question whether God really loves them. I mean, today it reminds me of the Israelites who were who were traveling through the wilderness for four years. This is 40 years in the desert, described as a place with snakes and scorpions, who were saying, let's go back to Egypt. You know, this isn't a good idea. Let's go back to where we came from. And, and a lot of Christians will struggle with that when they're going through hard times. Do they really believe that God loves them? Or do, they, or do, or do you see God as the great killjoy? who wants to keep all the fun and enjoyable things out of life because he wants you to be miserable, but then hopefully you'll go to heaven at the end. So uh, 
And I think this, this, this also ties into, you know, there, there are many commands in the scriptures, but do you believe that uh, the, the commands are just to sift out people from God, or are the commands there also because God loves us and he knows these commands are here because he loves us and, and, and it's for good things? You know, I, when I give my children advice or I discipline them, I think it's always, uh, you know, I certainly hope so, it's always thinking, I know something that they don't know, uh, and I want to tell them something to avoid unnecessary pain and a bad outcome in their life, because I know things that they don't know. And, uh, you know, sometimes they'll listen, sometimes they don't, sometimes they think they know better than I do. But um, when I gave one of my children yesterday uh, some advice that he didn't want to hear, but it's based on me being a lot older than he is and knowing what's going to happen if he doesn't follow my advice. So God's like that with us. He knows a lot more than we do. And if he really loves us and he gives us a command, it's for our own good. It's for, even if it doesn't feel like it at the time, it seems like it's a harder way, but in the end, the outcome it's going to produce is good. So if you really believe God is good, then you're not going to struggle with the commands of God because you're going to think, well, okay, I don't understand this, but God loves me. And if he doesn't want me to do this or he does want me to do this, then I trust that that he's got my best interests at heart. I think Christians struggle with this. The, the, the Christian life becomes a great burden if you don't really believe that God loves you. You know, some people, uh, I realize, also struggle with the whole idea of God is love or God really loving us deeply because uh, maybe they didn't feel like their own father uh, was, a, was a fountain of love in life. Okay? Um, and... We've had, in, in this room right here, we've had all kinds of different fathers from all that kinds of different cultures with different strengths and different weaknesses. Some have had fathers who were distant or absent, who were abusive, unstable, unreliable, liars, alcoholics, enablers. You know, all we've had all different kinds of fathers that we've had. And I, whether it was because I was aware or oblivious, I don't know. I never questioned that my father loved me growing up. Uh, uh, even for, I just, I just didn't. I, ne- I never questioned, I always thought my father loved me. Maybe he was very busy, he wasn't as involved with me as, as, uh, as some other fathers were, but I always, I never questioned that my father loved me. So for me, to, the, the whole idea that God loves me, I never questioned that. I just don't question that life. And so, but I realize that there are others who struggle with this all the time. Just, you know, here's what happened to me. Here's what's going on. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he does love me. And they go back and forth on that. So I just assume, hey, I'm going through a tough time in life right now, but certainly God loves me just as much as he always has. Maybe there's something I need to repent of or I need to change, but I don't question that, that God's love is, is, is there. For those who struggle with the idea of God loving us deeply in your hearts. A, a, couple of, a couple of scriptures that I don't struggle with this, but these are reassuring to me. 
So they may be helpful for those who struggle with this. The Psalms of David. David understood that God loved him. He totally got that. He understood that. And so reading the Psalms of David just to see how he saw God. And if we can see God the same way that he did, this is why he was able to stand up against Goliath. He saw, he really saw that God loved him and was looking out for him. Psalm 103 is a, uh, is to me is, is, is one good example of how he viewed God. I don't know if the word love appears in this psalm, but definitely the, the idea is all over it. Psalm 103. For those who have Bible based on the Septuagint, it might be designated Psalm 102. So just think about I want you to think about how David saw God as, as being, you know, God is love. God is a loving God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Everything within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his rewards who is merciful to all your transgressions, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from corruption, who crowns you with mercy and compassion, who satisfies your desire with good things, and your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord shows mercies and judgment to all who are wrong. He made known his ways to Moses, the things he willed to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not become angry to the end, nor will he be wrathful forever. He did not deal with our sins with us according to our sins, nor reward us according to our transgressions. For according to the heights of the heaven and from earth, so the Lord reigns in mercy over all those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so he removes our transgressions from us. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, he flourishes. The wind passes through it, and it shall not remain. And it shall no longer know its place. But the mercy of the Lord is from age to age upon those who fear him, and his righteousness upon their children's children. To, to such as keep his covenants and remember his commandments to do them. Uh, and it goes on from there. So, that, that, But that's, that's the picture of God, that David understood God as, as, far as, the, as far as the east is from the west, as far as the heavens are above the earth. He saw God as a loving, compassionate, merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. So he, he got this. And... He he. This is how God revealed Himself to Moses when Moses asked to see God. He revealed Himself with with the same words here. So, seeing God for who He is uh, will really, I think, uh, clarify a lot of things for us. I think of also Ezekiel's how Ezekiel saw God, how the prophet Ezekiel in um, Ezekiel eighteen. Ezekiel 18, here he's talking about someone who has lived a wicked life who then turns back to God. And I want you to see the character of God in this, who God is. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 27, he says, Again, when a lawless man turns away from the lawlessness he commits, 
and does judgment and righteousness, then he guards his life, for he turned himself away from all the ungodliness he committed. He will surely live and not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not right. Is not my way right, O house of Israel? Is not your way wrong? I shall judge you, O house of Israel, each one according to his ways, says the Lord. Return and turn away from all your ungodliness, and it shall not be to you as punishment for wrongdoing. Cast away from yourself all your ungodliness you commit against me, and make a new heart and a new spirit for yourselves. Why should you die, O house of Israel? For I do not will the death of the one who dies, says the Lord. So this is what God says. Look, God's much more loving and kind than the Jews were. So this is an argument taking place between God and, 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 and the religious Jews. God says, I want you to have a new heart and a new spirit. I want to forgive you. Turn back to me. He says, I don't want anyone to die. Even the most wicked person, I want to forgive him and restore him. Just please come back to me. Take on a new heart and a new spirit. So this is, this is the nature of God. He's much more loving than, 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 uh, than people are, than we are. Uh, so th- this, is, this is the character and the nature of God. It's the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses tells the Jews that after they rebel and turn away from God. When they, when they completely reject God, and when they turn away from him, he's talking about, this is right before Moses dies, he's warning them what's going to happen in the future. And he says, you're going you're to turn away from God, you're going to be scattered, and you're going to pay the price for that. And then he talks about what's going to happen when you do turn, when they finally hit bottom and turn back. Deuteronomy 30 says, Now it shall be when all these things come upon you, the blessings and curses which I set before you, and you will reflect in your heart among all the nations where the the Lord your God scatters you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice from your whole heart and your whole soul, according to all I commanded you today. The Lord will heal your sins, have mercy on you, gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you scattered from one end of heaven to the other end, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there the Lord your God will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land your fathers inherited, and you shall have his inheritance. He will prosper and multiply you more than your fathers. The Lord your God will purify your heart and the heart of your seed to love the Lord your God from your whole heart and your whole soul that you may live. Uh, and then and then verse 9 and 10 says, The Lord your God will take great care of you in all the work of your hands and the offspring of your womb, produce of your land, the offspring of your cattle. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord and your God to keep and do all the commandments, ordinances, judgments written in this book of the law. And if you return to the Lord your God from your whole heart and your whole soul. So, this is God. God is loving. He's forgiving. It's like the story of the prodigal son. This is, this is, Jesus is saying nothing other than what God explained in the Old Testament, that God is a God of love. He loves us. He cares for us. He doesn't want even the most wicked person to perish. He wants them all to repent and come back and so he can restore them. So this is... We have to see God this way, that he's always been this way. He didn't become nicer or kinder in the New Testament. This, is, this has always been the nature of God. 
You know, the passage in John 3, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, uh, in John, John 3, 16. You know, it, it's a reminder right before that, as, as we discussed earlier when we had uh, communion, right before that, Jesus explains the one who came down, there's only one who came down from heaven, the Son of God, and that he would be lifted up, that God loves us so much that he would do anything to forgive us and restore us, that that's how much God loves us. Now, we have to repent of our sins. Jesus is the light who came into the world. This isn't a... This isn't a free pass to sin, but when we when we return to God, He loves us and is happy to forgive us and restore us, and that's that's the idea. He'll, God will do anything He can, short of short of overriding our free will. God wants us to love Him back, and that's what we have. We have free choice to do that, and, and God really does. Just like God said in Ezekiel that He says, "I take no pleasure in in the in, in the death." of the unrighteous. It says the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And and given the events in in the United States in the past week, this this verse here may may, uh, call to mind some other things as well, but we'll talk about that too. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Timothy says, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings and all those who are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But think about it. God wants everybody. And it says on the one hand, it says only a few will be saved, but God wants all people to be saved. This is the heart of God. God is a loving God who wants people to return to him and he wants them to forgive them. Now, this this passage right here, I think, pretty much demolishes uh, one of the, the core teachings of Calvinism that God, you know, Calvinism teaches that God sought, determined beforehand, these certain selected people are going to be saved, and these are the people are going to be destroyed, and they have no choice in the matter. It says, no, God wants everybody to be saved. He's a loving God. He's not, he's not a monster who arbitrarily sentence people to death with no choice of their own. He's not going to short uh, short circuit our, our our free will. He takes no pleasure in the destruction of anybody. You know, aside, as I, I thought about this passage right here, he says, uh, I want you to, everyone to pray for those who are in authority. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we just had a very a rather unusual week in the United States in, in, the, in the realm of politics where the the, uh, the the president of the United States got impeached. This tremendous uh, division in this country, where half of the country can't stand the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and the other half of the country can't stand the president of the United States. And it says to Christians, Paul says, "I exhort you to make prayers and intercessions and thanks for all men, for kings and all those who are in authority." So. We should be praying, Christians, for the President of the United States and the Speaker of the House of Representatives. I mean, when Paul's writing this, who's, who's the emperor? The Roman emperor, according to history, took Paul's head off. 
He was he was de- he was killed. He was murdered by the emperor of the Roman Empire. He's, he's saying we should be praying for the government, for all those who are in authority. So it doesn't matter if you're living in a country where the leadership is godless, corrupt, immoral, or whatever. Is that uh, you know? It certainly was the case when Paul was writing this. That that was the case where where the Caesars were completely immoral and corrupt and power hungry people. He says we should be praying. For all of our leaders, whether we like them or not, not just praying that uh, you know God takes them out, just, just pray, pray for all of our leaders in in both parties in the United States in all uh, in all places uh, of authority, and pray for them for their souls. God doesn't want anybody to be to be lost. That that all of them can repent and get their lives right with God, and and also that we can enjoy a time of peace. That there won't be war breaking out between the United States and Iran, China, Russia, North Korea, anywhere else. So that we can live at peace and that the gospel can spread unhindered. So, uh, but, but that's, that's the idea. God, God wants all men to be saved here. You know, many people, when they face trials in life, they'll say, I, I remember going to weddings where it, the sun was shining and, and the preacher would stand up and say, wow, God really is smiling down on the people getting married today because he gave you such a beautiful day. Well, you know, what What happens next week when it's raining or there's a hailstorm? Oh, well, I guess God uh, God doesn't think so highly of, of you here. Well, this is kind of nonsense that people are always looking for signs that God loves them and God God likes them. Of course God loves us. We don't need any, any signs. He sent his son. That's the only sign that we need, that God loves us. If we're facing trials in life, and it could be all kind. Life is full of trials. Life is full of challenges. It's it's painful. It's hard. Life is hard. If if we're facing trials in life, it could be illness. It could be disappointments with our with our, our career or our family or whatever or, or regret. If we're facing trials in life, there there are two possibilities here. And it could be that both of them are true. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Okay. Do you think that Satan is just asked for to sift one person? <laughs> okay. He said, that's it. I'll leave, I'm going to leave the other millions of believers or your followers alone for the next 2,000 years. Satan asked to, to sift him like wheat. He asked to sift Job like wheat. And guess what we should expect? Mm-hmm. If we're following in the footsteps of righteous men in the past, Satan's going to say, Lord, I want to sift that person like wheat to find out if their faith is genuine, to find out if they're serious. Yeah. I'm going to put them I'm going to put them to the test and see if they really love you or not. So, and, and Satan God asked to say uh, uh, Peter like wheat and and uh, uh, God didn't say no you can't. He allowed him to be sifted. And so we should expect that from ourselves. And, and also, let's turn to First Peter chapter one. What should Christians expect in life? 
And hopefully this will convince you to stop looking for signs that God loves you. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. Peter said, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've had to be grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with inexpressible and full and glory, full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So, uh, Peter is saying that the Christians are being grieved by various trials so that the genuineness of their faith, of more precious than gold, uh, which is tested by the fire. Our faith is being tested, refined, and proved by trials. Uh, It reminds me of a passage in Zechariah 13, God says, it shall come to pass in all the land that two-thirds shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I'll bring the one-third through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Mm-hmm. This is picture. This is the picture: is that a minority of people will decide to follow God, and they will be put through the fire, refined and tested like silver and gold. And these are the people who are going to call on God, and the Lord is going to say, "These are my people, the ones who've been tested by the fire." This is what we should expect in life. Mm-hmm. God tested Abraham by by in Genesis 22 by telling him by calling him to sacrifice his son all the all the, the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 Jesus himself it said was made perfect through suffering and in Hebrews 2 210 Hebrews I mean there was nothing wrong with Jesus in the first place but he was made mature complete and perfect through suffering his faith was refined Hebrews 12, it says, those whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And it says, this may be painful for a time, but it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who've been trained by it. So, um, I want to share with you a picture of God's love that, that I really like. It's Clement of Alexandria, so he's writing around the year 200. He's a teacher of the church in Alexandria, Egypt. But he's talking about what God is like and the love of God. And it's a beautiful picture. He says, For God of his great love to man comes to the help of man as the mother bird flies to one of her young that's fallen out of the nest. And if a serpent open its mouth to swallow the little bird, the mother flutters round, urging cries of grief over her dear progeny. And God the Father seeks his creature and heals his transgression and pursues the serpent 
and recovers the young one and incites it to fly up to the nest. Mm-hmm. Beautiful picture of the love of God and also the, the role of Satan in all this. This is uh, Clement Alexander's Exhortation of the Heathen, chapter 10, found in Anicene Fathers, volume 2, page 197. So, now some people... Those, those of us who, 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 who struggle with the deeply believing that God loves us and he's out for our best interests, and if we're going through tough times, that doesn't mean he doesn't love us. Okay, that's, that's a core bedrock attribute of God. Um, if we really grasp the love of God, that he loves us, all of his commands are out of love. They're for our best interests. We should embrace them even if we don't understand them and they're tough. The trials that we are going through are to refine us, that he's using that to refine our faith and produce something that's much greater, that's, that's also intended for our good. If we grasp that this is the love of God, that this is who God is, then as we're following God, we will naturally love other people because that's who God is. That's what he's all about as we're seeking God. Will imitate the sacrificial love of God that He showed by by sending His Son and and being willing to sacrifice Jesus' sacrifice of His own life. We will have the same love for everybody else, even for the most wicked people that are out there. We'll want them all to be saved and to repent, despite what they've done to us or what they've done to anybody else. Mm. And and it says here also, if we abide in the love of God then God will abide in us. Amen.